get a lot of questions, you know, clients who thinking about ways to enter into the United States. We are seeing an increase in the number of migrants arriving at our southern border. And we have a process in place to manage migrants at the border. We're working to make sure it's safe and orderly and humane. There is a lot of fraud in immigration. Is there a number of employee requirement for in a type of business? What if they could fully operate the business without physically being there? How much do I have to spend become a legal resident in the U.S.? It has to be considered per the individual. There's basically two types of ways you can go about it. All right, guys, welcome, welcome to episode 10 of Overtime with Nav. Very, very excited. Uh, my next guest is someone very near and dear to me. He holds so many titles. Um, uh, most importantly, one of my best friends. He was my former roommate in college. Where do I, where, where do I, where do I take this next? But we'll keep it professional for the moment and for the time being. Uh, U.S. immigration attorney Michael Ashuri. Michael. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We're very excited. Uh, I've been anticipating this podcast for quite some time now. I, I know you're a busy guy helping folks, you know, enter into the States uh, legally and, and respectfully. Thank you for joining and uh, dedicating your time here. Welcome. It's my pleasure to be here, Nap. Thank you for having me. I've been seeing uh, the various episodes and they've been very impressive so far. I'm proud of you. Keep crushing it with this podcast and I'm very happy to be a guest. Thanks, man. Listen, let, let's get right into it. The intention of the podcast really for our audience is to continue to deliver value. And um, thankfully, we've had a lot of positive feedback. And, you know, we like to bring on successful entrepreneurs like yourself, Mike, and really just, you know, give some insight, you know, give some good uh, current state of affairs in your space, as well as, uh, you know, have some fun with it. You know, what is a day in the life uh, with Michael and his business and what's going on in his day to day? So, um, you know, feel free to relax, enjoy, and, and no need to keep it fully professional. But, you know, the goal here is to add value to our guests. And I'm going to st go straight into it if it's okay with you, Mike. You know, I just want to get straight into it. I get a lot of questions to my office, you know, clients who have family members and friends outside of the States and thinking about ways to enter into the United States. I just want to really get straight into it, Mike. How much do I have to spend to get into the U.S. and get legal resident, become a legal resident into the U.S. Got it. So it's a it's an interesting question, and I, I want to start by saying that anytime you want to consider immigration for any individual, it really comes down to that individual, because depending on their particular circumstances, there could be a host of options that are available to them. And you know, for some people, for example, they might be married to somebody in the United States, or they might have a child that's a U.S. citizen that could petition for them. Or, you know, other people might have a tremendous amount of financial means that they can commit to an investment in the United States. And sure. So there's a lot that has to do with the personal circumstances. Also, their country, their country of citizenship or their country of birth can also play a major role in what options are available to them and the timeline of those options. So whenever you're considering immigration benefits, it has to be considered per the individual. So um, I think the question that you were asking had to do with how much it's going to cost. So yes. is that more so kind of, are you kind of gearing it towards more of an investor option? Because 
there's various investor options where somebody can invest to get immigration benefits to the United States, and we can certainly talk about those. Um, is that what you were? You... Yeah. Well, you know, I'll just be frank with you. I think the, the reality is most people outside of the United States want want to pay, you know, the least amount of money to get that solidified and get and get uh, get into the states. I know there are certain factors and things. Maybe you could share a story of, an, or an example of one of your clients where you know there was a certain amount of funds spent and how they were spent and most effectively and efficiently into getting into the US. Sure. So so okay, so in now that we're talking about like in funds and investing, I'll talk about a particular visa and I'll give a story of a particular client uh, and how they got, you know, how they got immigration benefits to the US. So sure. Um so this particular individual, he was already in the United States as a visitor. Okay. And once he was in the U.S., he decided that he actually wanted to start a business. And this particular individual is Pakistani. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to me and kind of explained his circumstances. He was in the U.S. as a visitor. He had been here for a number of months, and he decided that he wanted to start this business, and he was considering the various options that were available to him. So because he's a citizen of Pakistan, Okay. There's a specific visa available to Pakistanis and a number of other countries. It's called the E2 visa. Mm -hmm. And the E2 visa is a visa where somebody can essentially invest in a new in a business in the US. They could either start a new business or they could invest in an existing business. And of course, they have to be a citizen of a particular country that has an E2 treaty with the United States. There's a number of countries that have this treaty, Canada, Mexico, Germany, France, Italy, many countries, but there are certain major countries that don't have the treaty. For example, China, Russia, Brazil. These are major countries. You know, if Dubai has it? Dubai doesn't have it. Okay. Um, in our experience, a lot of residents of Dubai hold citizenship to other countries that do qualify. Right. Like the UK, I believe. Like right? the UK or Pakistan. So they can still be eligible for the, for the E2 visa. So we want to just kind of take it case by case and see what the what the underlying citizenship is that the individual has. But anyways, this person was is Pakistani. Pakistan qualifies. So basically, the way the E2 visa works is, like I said, you can either buy an uh, an existing business or invest in an existing business or start a, a start. In this particular case, uh, the guy had an uncle in the United States that had familiarity with running cell phone repair shops. He himself had experience with running cell phone repair shops. Um, he had, through various means, he he got uh, a gift from his parents. He got a gift from his uncle. And he was able to put together $100,000 worth of investment. And typically for an E2, while there's no kind of minimum investment amount specified by the regulations, the regulations specify that the investment has to be substantial. Mm -hmm. So in this particular case, and by the way, the way that substantial is defined, it's this whole like, approach where they go through various factors. But in our practice, we, we generally recommend at least $100,000 or more. Oh, wow. That's it. 100000 Correct. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, and, I, and that brings me to another point. So sometimes, you know, when people ask me, you know, ways for investors to come to the U.S. just like you did, mm -hmm. they have this preconceived notion that you have to invest a million dollars. Sure. To get immigration benefits. That's what I thought. I said you have to put at least a million dollars to get here. But no, that's not no. necessarily the case. There are immigration options. It's the EB-5 visa that a lot of people are familiar with. I think it has a certain cachet, and a lot of people are just familiar with EB-5, which currently requires a minimum of at least $1,050,000 or 800000 depending on the location that the investment is 
where the business is located and we and we can talk about that but yeah that is one option but it's not the only option like we just talked about the e2 we've had many clients get approved for their e2 visas for investments of a hundred thousand dollars or in some cases even less than that now we don't recommend going less than a hundred thousand because you're increasing the likelihood of an unfavorable outcome but like i said we've had many successful outcomes at around that hundred thousand dollar mark of course i do want to specify that there are kind of it's it's not as simple as the amount of the investment it's considered in relation to the type of business that you're investing in but um but like yeah hundred thousand should be okay in many cases and in the in the case of a startup right i mean you're essentially projecting right so what are some of the things that you need to have in place for that e2 to be approved to really uh you know get to to really get there essentially so if i'm starting a business and putting in a hundred thousand dollars let's say I spend the money on you know from advertising get a few employees and do, do my thing what is it that i really need to have in place and solidified so that i could get approved is there a particular like plan or anything that i need yeah so perfect so in in terms of a protocol most of the time what our clients will do is they'll set up a company either an LLC or a corporation, in most cases, they will get an EIN number for their business. With the EIN number, that special number that's given by the IRS that's issued to the business, they will open a bank account. From when they open the business bank account, they'll then transfer their investment funds from themselves personally into that business bank account. Then they'll spend the money, just like you said, on whatever their business needs. In this particular case that I was mentioning, um, this Pakistani individual, he leased a storefront. He bought all the equipment he needed for the cell phone repair shop. He bought various items of inventory, like cases and whatever his business needed. He set up a website. He basically did all of those steps to get the business to the point where it was on the brink of becoming operational. So in his particular case, he was a visitor. So as a visitor, he's not allowed to work in the United States. So what he did was he got the business to the point where it was on the brink of becoming operational. He had set everything up, made his investment, and did all those various initial set steps to get the business set up. And then um, at the point where the business was pretty much turnkey and ready to operate, it's at that point, once we gathered all those documents, that we were in position to submit an application. Now, to go back to your earlier point, one of the essential documents that was included in his, applica in his application was the business plan. Mm -hmm. And... Again, this was a startup company, so USCIS in this case was... What's USCIS? The USCIS is basically the main um, government agency that processes these immigration applications. Gotcha. So that's like the agency that we're going to submit a lot of these petitions to. Uh, for E2 visas, actually, it's interesting because there's two ways to apply for an E2. You can either apply from within the United States... You know, you're, let's say you're here as a visitor or you're here as a student or you're here in some other valid non-immigrant status and you can change your status from within the United States. That's called a change of status. And if you're either, if you're outside of the United States or maybe you're in the United States, but you want to obtain a visa, you'll apply for a visa at a consulate abroad. So there are two different things. You can either apply for a change of status or you can apply for a visa. If you do a change of status from within the United States, you don't get a visa, you get status. Basically, you get the ability to remain in the United States pursuant to the terms of that status, like the expiration date on that status, and you get to do the activities that are permitted under that status. If you get a visa, then 
you're applying directly at a consulate. You go, let's say, let's say you're um, from Canada. You're a citizen of Canada and you want to apply for an E2 visa. You'll apply for the visa in Toronto at the U.S. consulate in Toronto, and you'll get a visa stamped in your passport to be able to enter the United States with that visa. Now, the reason I bring that up is because in the context of an E2 visa, if you're doing a change of status, it gets submitted to USCIS. But if you're doing a visa, it gets submitted directly to the consulate. It doesn't get it doesn't go through USCIS. Interesting. So, an example of the change in status, just so I, so for us uh, non-immigration specialists to understand, is that essentially going from, let's say, in this example, you were saying the guy was on a visitor's visa, and then he goes from a visitor's visa and changes status to, in this example, he can get what? So, what is that change of status? Yeah. So he was a visitor, mm-hmm. and we were applying to USCIS to change from visitor to E2. So as a visitor, he's not allowed to work in the United States. He was limited to six months to be able to stay in the United States. But by changing him to an E2 status, we were able to, and we'll get to this, his case was ultimately approved, but with his E2 status, now he was able to direct and develop his business, which is what the E2 authorizes you to do. So it's perfectly suited for entrepreneurs. So with the E2 status, he was now eligible to direct and develop his business. And on top of that, he was given not this six-month window to be in the United States. He was given two years of status from the date of the approval of the change of status. So he was able to also extend the duration that he was able to be in the U.S., which was huge for him, um, to operate his business. That's amazing. So in this example, um, and I want to make sure, you know, because the nuances are really key here, because you could really screw it up if you don't know. Essentially, I could come in as a foreigner to the U.S. on a visitor's visa, set up shop, not generate any revenue, which what which seems like what triggers operational. Is that really what it is? Like, for instance, if I do everything but I do not collect fees, am I good? It's a it's so it's a it's a great phenomenal question, and it's a question that a lot of people are interested in. So, whenever you're doing something that should would be considered work. Whether or not you're generating fees for it, you're more closer to employment that you're unauthorized to perform. But the general setup of the company, opening the bank account, registering the corporation, depositing the money into the business and getting that money invested, those are more of the initial setup tasks and you know actions that are generally you're, you're in a safer zone that you're doing while a visitor. And again, the more you're getting into that that kind of other end of the spectrum that is closer to operations, the more you're putting yourself into risk of being seen to be employment. So here's the thing. It's a funny thing that when your business is operational, you create a stronger impression and you and you make it more clear. Like when you're able to show purchase orders from customers that are actually transacting with your business, it generates much more of the proof that you're real, that this isn't just some sort of a fraudulent scheme to get immigration benefits, but that you're actually an operational business. So you're in this catch-22 as an investor that's in the U.S. as a visitor. How do you do that? Because on one end, you cannot work. And on the other end, having an operational business strengthens your case. Critical, yeah. It's not necessarily critical because as I mentioned, in this particular example of the Pakistani individual, he got the business to the brink of becoming operational and it was still approved. But if you're able to show those operations, it's even further strengthens your case, but not if you have to do it at the expense of working unlawfully, right. because that can pretty much put your every major hot water. So there's a couple of options. 
One is that you could partner with a U.S. citizen. If you have a 50% owner that's a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident that's able to handle operations while you are essentially a passive investor, then that could overcome that hurdle of you know, having those operations without necessarily being the one in charge of the operations. Of course, you are required as an E2 investor that your purpose for being in the United States is to direct and develop the business. Sure. So you can't be a, a passive investor indefinitely. You know, when you're, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the, pin, the business plan is a critical part of this application. Your business plan needs to make clear and the reality of the situation must be clear that your role within the company is a role that necessitates some form of directing and developing the business. So, you know, it's okay that while the application is pending, of course, you're in this more passive role, but once that case gets approved, your role has to be to direct and develop the business. But it, so it has to get approved before you change from passive to non-passive. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You, while you're a visitor and, you, or, and, and for more broadly, while you do not have work authorization in the U.S., you can't be operating it actively. You can take those, you can take care of those initial steps that we talked about, but no work might be done toward the business. So again, one option is to, um, one option is to partner with a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident, a green card holder that has work authorization and kind of allocate all those managerial duties to that individual while your application is pending. Um, and another option is to basically hire somebody. So you really limit your ac activity to just hiring that person mm -hmm. to take care of all ma management and operations. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a lesser form of that partnership where rather than partnering with somebody, you're just hiring somebody and you're really removing yourself and you're creating that separation from the business so that there's no inference or no in fact, reality that you're managing, directing, operating the business in any form, because really, during that period, you're essentially, you know, your role should be limited to being essentially like a passive investor into this business while you're waiting for those immigration benefits to come in, and while you're waiting for that case to get approved. Got it. No, that's that's all critical, and um, I'm already thankful that we have you by our side, Michael, because there's a lot of nuances to this journey of the E2 specifically. So. Um, you know, th thanks for sharing some of that insight for me. So kind of to move on, I mean, you mentioned a couple things that I, I kind of want to touch on from a tax side a little bit too, right? Um, first off, passive versus non-passive activity in the United States, at, at least, because it's, it's very important, especially for someone, let's say an investor who already has investment presence um, in the United States. Uh, so meaning someone who maybe has real estate or like a foreign investor in real estate um, that has nothing to do with their immigration standing. But then at some point is like, hey, I have a lot of investments here. And for whatever reason, they, they do want to immigrate into the United States and they want to use the E2 option. It's actually very interesting because by this logic, if you structure this in a way where you do create a 50% partner, at least, right? It's it's minimum 50? You should have at least 50% ownership, ideally. Ideally 50%? Or more. You know, if you can be 100% owner, that's great too, but... But the 50% or some sort of partnership enables the active partner, the non-passive partner, to be able to do the operational stuff and actually do employment-type work. Assuming they have that work authorization. Assuming, yeah, let's assume they're a citizen, while you, the foreigner... The passive investor, uh, 
you know, invest the funds uh, until it's ready to be approved. And then at which point they could transfer out. And it's actually, I mean, I'm thinking of, I'm putting my tax hat on is if I'm someone who has a bunch of real estate, as an example, and wants ways to offset their real estate, if they were a non-passive um, and uh, they had non a non-passive equity interest in this business, that that investment would effectively be disallowed into like allowing them to offset all that investment against other earnings. So if anything, it's it's a benefit to that person to be passive because they have all all these other passive investments into the in, with their real estate, and they're effectively you know let me let me just double down and get this U.S. status and get an E two visa. Um, by investing with another third-party partner who's the active partner, but I'm my passive partner and my passive activity, which is ultimately going to be a pretty large loss, especially the first year as an invest, uh, as a first-year startup business. At the minimum, I get to offset it against all the taxable income that's coming from my real estate. So I think for a foreign investor, that kind of even makes it even more exciting to take the E2 route. I don't know what your thoughts are there, but um, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I think that that option to allow for another another partner to take the active role and you take the passive role until you're ready to change it up, especially in that first year when you're generating losses and offsetting those losses against real estate activity, I think, you know, it's almost a slam dunk. Why not? Is there any issues that you could see from that? Well, a couple of things. One is that we're, we're operating under the framework that the business in this context is an active business, not a real estate investment, because the E2 visa has to be a bona fide enterprise. It has to be like an active for-profit business. Absolutely. So real estate investments, passive investments in real estate don't qualify for E2. So we're just saying that you're offsetting the losses against the real estate, but that, that the business in question is active, right? Correct. Okay. So the investor is a passive investor. The equity holder, the foreign investor is a passive investor in your example. So in my example, the only other issue that I can see here, I mean, just quickly thinking about it on the spot is that, again, this whole idea of being a passive investor is, again, in the context of somebody that's in the U.S. as a visitor, they don't have the ability to work and they're just basically looking for a strategy of having their business be operational while their application is pending. They're not necessarily being listed on any documentation submitted to USCIS as a passive investor. Their application states that they're gonna be either a general manager or the president or CEO, some sort of a clearly active role. The, uh, just kind of this thing that we're talking about of passive investor is more so the reality of the situation until the case gets approved. My concern is if on one sort of a government filing, like a tax filing or something, you're listing yourself as a passive investor based on this you know small window of time that the application is pending, oftentimes it can be, you know, a month or less. And, you know, on your actual application for immigration benefits, you're listing yourself as the CEO of the company, which, you know, is clearly con connotes an active role, that contradiction. Um, because again, this idea of being passive is more so just for the limited window while the application is pending. But once that application is approved, they're getting kind of flung into the role that they said they were going to be, which is a, a role that involves directing and developing the business. Uh, so, there's nothing being filed with immigration that talks about this passive thing. This is more so a justification of demonstrating, yeah, I'm not working without authorization. I'm just kind of sitting by right now 
passively, I'm literally waiting for you to approve my case so I can hit the ground running, um, but everything's ready to go in the context of a business that's not yet operational. Or here's this partner that I have that's kind of handling, holding down the fort right now while I'm waiting. But as soon as I get approved, I'm jumping right in and I'm operating. Right. Just like I said, I would. That, that, that contradiction is my concern. So, so I think, I mean, hearing that, I would say on the tax return, whether a 1065, it seems like, like a good partnership tax return, um, in the year that the formal, the formal uh, business has not been approved for the, uh, the business doesn't approve the investor for the E2 visa in the first year at least, or in, until it does get approved, I can't see it. I can't see be um, that investor having pa- active status, non-passive status on the tax return at least, because if it is, then he's all automatically triggering employment, you know, ordinary income from thing, and so which is not the case. So if anything, I think the tax return should probably be passive. Um, you know, I don't think that should trigger anything. If anything, that that should be fine. If they are technically the CEO, but they're passively you know, a, a passive in, investor until they're formally allowed to work in the States. And, you know, it's a whole different story. That kind of takes me to another thing. What if, you know, they could fully operate the business without physically being there? So can they be operational while they're not physically being there and work in the U.S. Maybe? and generate revenue there? Sure. Yeah. So, it, you know, these kind of restrictions on working and so on, it's based on this understanding of the individual being physically present in the U.S. Right. If somebody is in... Japan and is able to fully operate their business in the United States, then by all means, they're they're free to do that. These restrictions on work are, you know, based on the individual being in the U.S. Physically. Physically, correct. So it's so interesting because we this isn't something thought about so much in the past, right? I bet this is such a new thing. Everyone's working remotely. There's so much commerce being made in a virtual setting. So now like the the questions come. And so we're still at a point where all immigration-related matters and all legal employment matters are, are still come down to, hey, you need, in order to have an issue, you physically cannot work here. There's no restriction on virtual and making money in the U.S. virtually. Correct. Yeah, you're allowed to own a business in the United States without work authorization. You're allowed to be in Canada and have a business in the United States that's running and you're the owner of that business and you're in Canada working for that business you know, operating that business remotely, that's not at issue. It's once you're in the United States, we need to check, okay, what status do you hold in the U.S.? You know, does that status permit you to work? And to what extent are you allowed to work? Are you allowed to work for one company? Are you allowed, do you have blanket work authorization to work for any company? These are the kind of questions that come into play once somebody is in the U.S. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of things, a lot of things, um, you know, immigration related, uh, you know, we're we're just in this kind of new world where a lot of things can be done virtually, you know. So, you know, for our E2 cases, for example, we oftentimes recommend getting leasing out a physical location for your business. And investors will come to us and say, hey, I don't necessarily need a physical location. Like I'm able to do this, you know, from my apartment or from my house, you know. But and and while, you know, since COVID, there there's obviously a much more, you know, the understanding of how businesses can operate is really developing fast, you know, right now. And we're able to see that a lot of businesses can be operated remotely. Still, from an immigration standpoint, what we're seeing is that 
having that lease, having that traditional model of having a physical location that's kind of within a commercial zone that you can show the lease agreement and you can take photos of the business and you can show the desks and the computers and the signage and all these kind of traditional notions of what we have of what a business is, they strengthen the case and they strengthen and, and they help alleviate the immigration officer of the concerns that this is some sort of a fraudulent, fake kind of sham of getting somebody to the United States. You know, these kind of traditional notions of a business help to solidify and strengthen the case. What do you think about assessments or, because I hear that and I think, okay, well, another case of government regulatory bodies being a little bit behind in modern day society and maybe need to play a little catch up on their assessment process. What do you think about it? To be honest, I understand it because, you know, at the end of the day, there is a lot of fraud in immigration and, you know, a lot of these kind of measures, what we just talked about, are to help alleviate any sort of concerns that there's something awry here, that something doesn't add up here. And so, you know, I see it in my practice. I see how kind of taking these steps, having a physical location, giving them something tangible in the form of pictures of the inventory, the lease agreement, signed evidence of lease payments being made toward the business, you know, all these kind of things that get associated with a traditional business help to strengthen the case. It, it's just giving that immigration officer the certainty that this is real. So I understand it. You know, I put myself in, in the shoes of the U.S. immigration system. And, you know, like I said, there's, there's lots of fraud with various kind of immigration benefits. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, hopefully there will be mechanisms developed in time that, um, are more favorable. And by the way, this is not to say that you necessarily have to get a lease. It's not like a statutory requirement for an E2 that you have a lease. But it helps the case. talking about helping the case. All right. Um, or yeah. Because I'll tell you, man, I've, I've seen it. My clients are there. There are so many active, successful, you know, businesses who employ tons of people that don't even have a physical location. I know. <laughs> I know. And so, you know. I know. And and the fact that that helps, I mean, I get how it helps, but I don't know if it should, I, and I don't know if it does necessarily, hey, you don't have a lease in place? Okay, this isn't happening. Is that really the environment? No, no, no. Okay. It's not the environment. Look, it's it's a tool to help strengthen your, you know, you know, in the totality of this picture that is your case, mm -hmm. it's one of those elements that will, you know, bolster it. You know, and, and you know, there's other things too, you know, it, sometimes things don't add up. Like, let's say like your business involves, you know, storing, you know, thousands of items of inventory and you're showing some sort of like a virtual WeWork lease. So you have a lease there, but things may, you know, you have to have a, like an explanation of how all this makes sense. Where is your inventory right. stored? Right. US, sure. USAS will ask about that. Of you course. Know, and, uh, and so everything has to add up. So it's not just, oh, get a lease signed. You're going to be in the, in the clear. No. No. It's just, you know, it helps assuming it adds up with the whole picture that is your case, it will help the case ultimately. Again, assuming that it's it makes sense. It's like a lease that's sufficient for your business, et cetera. Right. Is there a, and forgive me, uh, you know, as I'm trying to dissect the various things, because I know there are other types of visas as well. Is there a number of employee requirement for like an E2 visa in a, in a type of business or is there... What, what are you essentially trying to prove that, I mean, if I could run a successful practice, but I'm the only one employed, is that good enough? 
or how does it work in the E2 space specifically? Yeah, so um, great question. The number of employees, there's no technical requirement of having a set number of employees. Like EB-5, mm-hmm. which is a green card, it's a it's an investment-based immigration option that results ultimately in a green card. E-2 doesn't result in a green card, it's a non-immigrant. All right. EB-5 is also an investment-based option that results in a green card. And that option has a set dollar amount required to be invested and a set minimum number of employees that need to be jobs that need to be created. It's like 10. Is that the number? 10. Oh, no, 10 employees. Okay. E2 doesn't have that set requirement for job creation. That said, there are job there are requirements in place for the E2 that kind of go hand in hand with job creation, such that creating those jobs will be beneficial to the viability of the case. Mm-hmm. Not that they need to be in existence at the outset. But like in the context of a startup uh, business, they should be accounted for in a business plan. And, and there's two particular requirements that I can think of off the top of my head. For the E2. For the E2. One is that, again, you need to be directing and developing the business. So let's say you start a cafe. You can't say, you can't be the one making the cappuccinos and mm. the lattes. You need to be the one that's directing and developing the business, overseeing the growth, overseeing the enterprise you know, figuring out different opportunities for expansion. And you have to have a more high level role within the company than just doing that baseline work that the, that the barista would do. Mm-hmm. So from that standpoint, if you're not, if you, if you're submitting an application as a startup company and you have no employees projected to be hired, then the immigration is going to come back and has the potential to come back and say, well, who's going to be doing this baseline work? You know, right now we don't we don't see any employees on payroll, and we don't see any plans to hire anybody. So how does that work? Um, and and it, it, how do you how do you make the argument that you're really directing and developing and not doing the baseline work? So that's from one angle. The other requirement is for E2, the business cannot be a marginal enterprise. Marginal essentially means that the business is like a small business that's just benefiting the E2 investor and their family, just basically creating a minimal livelihood for the investor and their family. Now, so I hear that. I just feel like there needs to be employees. You need to benefit out of the community. Well, in the context of marginality, if your business is extremely profitable, then you're also, you know, outside of the definition of marginal because you're not just providing a minimal livelihood for your, the investor and the family. Business is extremely profitable. So, so I, so I would say typically if I'm providing a very good livelihood for my family, I'm good. You're, it's, it's, you're, you're in better shape. I think a combination of um, jobs created for U.S. workers and you know good financial projections in the context of a startup company uh, are really helpful. Now, here's the thing, though: sometimes you know people buy existing businesses, and the financials are you know the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, of how the business has been operating, and um, you know the jobs that have been in place to date, and again, what the financials are of the business. So you know. People will come to us and say, hey, I want to buy this business. Um, you know, it's uh, netting $40,000 a year right now. I'm buying it and I'm taking a loan against it. So I'm going to have this new debt service obligation to the business, which is going to bring down my bottom line even more. But I have this beautiful business plan that shows that we're going to be uh, hitting $500,000 in year one from our takeover and year two, this, that. You need to be able to substantiate, you need to be able to justify that improvement in operations. And, you know, just saying that there's a new owner in, in town doesn't really 
cut it. You know, got it. Even though, even though I've seen, believe it or not, I've personally seen great examples of acquisitions where new owners came in and did cut cut it. But for purposes of approval, the proof has to be in the pudding. So you have to have really good projections and basis for these projections. Yeah, your projections are going to be, I think, more helpful in the context of a startup. Right. In the context of a business that's being acquired, because you have so much proof in previous years of operations, if you do want to kind of distinguish the business, I wouldn't solely rely on new management. Mm. I would ideally want to show an infusion of capital into the business to to help in some sort of growth or expansion. And, and then you can put yourself more in the lens of that startup almost, where you can start to credibly rely on um, on, pro- on projections that are you know, that have a, a, a significant difference from past operations. I would like to see some sort of capital infusion to help substantiate that. So capital infusion along with a baseline foundation of a business that already is giving that um, beyond just a marginal, uh, marginal uh, profit for just the investor to live on versus, you know, you want something a little bit more than that you're saying. So ideal situation, set in a different way. You're buying a book of business that's netting at least a couple hundred thousand dollars. You have a good plan. You're going to infuse some capital on it to make it even greater. And it'll be nice to have a couple employees already uh, as part of the overhead. I think in the context, in the example that you just listed, I think the person should be in pretty good shape um, just based on those kind of factors that you mentioned alone. I think that should be... um, potentially a viable business to acquire for any got it is there a minimum profit margin or profit that you you look for you know i look for like i kind of assess the whole picture Mm -hmm. and i kind of give my input on it on on whether i think they'll get some pushback whether i think it's clearly in 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 the green like i feel like it's clearly uh a you know i take the whole picture and i say okay if an immigration officer is looking at this what's the likelihood that they're going to consider this marginal? And so it's a it's a cumulative kind of assessment based on the employees in place, the revenue, whether additional capital is being injected into the business, how many years of past operations are there? Is this, is this business still kind of just getting its footing from being a brand new company? So all those factors come into play when I, when I assess like what I feel like an immigration officer at a consulate looking at this case in, in 10 minutes is going to, is going to kind of how they're going to feel about it. I see. Okay. That's great. So I want to shift gears a little bit. I mean, before we do, uh, just to make sure I understand the projection aspect of it. I mean, what exactly are you providing? Is it like, are you requiring or like a pro forma P&L or a balance sheet? What are, you, what are you specifically requiring for your applications or what does USCIS require for that? Yeah. So typically... Typically, in the context of, a, of of somebody that's doing a startup company, they're 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 starting a new business in the U.S. Yeah. Typically, those applications will get submitted along with a business plan. Okay, business plan. What does the, that entail? So the business plan will provide a summary of what this business does. Mm-hmm. It'll provide a uh, basically a breakdown of how much money was invested into this company and what was the money allocated toward. What was what was spent? You know, X amount of dollars on marketing. X amount on operating capital, this amount on inventory, et cetera. It'll provide a background on the investor themselves, what their role is going to be with the company and why they're qualified, why they are positioned 
to be successful in this endeavor. And it will provide those performas that we talked about. It'll be like a five-year financial outlook in terms of, you know, what the numbers are going to look like in year one, in terms of profitability, in terms of gross revenue, uh, et cetera, for, for approximately five years. Mm-hmm. And it'll also show an org- organizational chart of, you know, the anticipated hiring over the next period of time and along with any employees that are already in place. That's um, great. So it, it, it is... From one standpoint, it's like a traditional business plan. And from another standpoint, it has specific E2 elements that are covered in it um, so that an immigration officer can look at it and can really help them in their assessment of the case. So so if we could, sorry, I'm a numbers guy. I love seeing like financials and pro formas and all this stuff. Like, and all I think about is if I'm, you know, if you could maybe wear your USCIS immigration officer hat for a second, you're looking at a pair of my... Uh, financials or projections that I'm going to prepare um, to submit, are there any KPIs specifically that you want to hit? Like anything? Like I asked about, I mean, I know you said I look at it as a whole, but let's just, I mean, just going back, let's stick to the bottom line. Yeah. Is there a bottom line projection, like a minimum that you want to see? I just, I can tell you this, okay? I, I know, you know, people ask me all the time, like, you know, is this amount of profitability, is this amount of net income good? I hesitate to make a blanket statement. I don't want anybody to watch it and interpret it and be like, oh, I hit that number, I'm good. Right. But I will just tell you this. The more profitable the business is, you're in the more good shape you're in, the more employees that you have, the more good shape you're in. And the lower the profitability is and the lower the employee count, the more you're in the territory where you're giving ammunition to an immigration officer to consider your business marginal. So, um, So, I mean, hopefully that's helpful. That helps. That helps tremendously. And so, and for my reference, is it a, hey, you, you're approved and or not approved and there's no other option at that point? Can you reapply? Yeah. Is there a really crazy process to reapply? Can you feel like, do they say, hey, fix X, Y, Z? What Give us a little bit of background on what that journey is like a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, you typically with a USCIS case filing, you have the option to potentially reapply. So again, if somebody's a visitor and they're doing a change of status, that change of status has to be filed while they're in that visitor status. So sometimes they'll file and then, you know, by the time they get a decision on the case, their underlying visitor status has now expired. So they can't just launch that change of status anymore because with the new filing date of the resubmission, it's now outside of their uh, visitor status. So they could refile again, presumably at the consulate as a visa application, not as a change of status. Um, there's another option of appealing the decision, either doing an appeal or in some cases, it's either a motion to re- reconsider or a motion to reopen or an appeal, depending on the particular situation with you, with certain USCIS filings, you have that option that's available um, or, re- or reapplying. At the consulate, if an E2 visa application gets denied at a consulate, there is no like appeal process to that denial. It's typically a resubmission but when it's in the context of a visa application. But yeah, sometimes they'll tell you these these consular officers, again, they're oftentimes reviewing 100 cases. They're doing 100 interviews in a day or more, sometimes, uh, you know, more than well, well over 100 interviews a day. Do you know how many are on average approved in like a period of time? I don't have like specific figures to give you on that, but. Um, but sometimes they'll they'll quickly jot down some notes like, 
you know, fix this, fix this, or, or provide us with some more documents and just reapply. And, um, and can that be a quick experience or is it like the reapplication, like ability or it depends on the resubmit essentially? Yeah. It, it depends on the consulate, but it depends on how busy the consulate is. Oh. Like, you know, if, if one consulate gave you your initial appointment in like 15 days, then even if you have to reinitiate the process all over again, and those processing times are the same, chances are you'll get another appointment that quick. But if you're at another consulate that's taking four months to schedule you and, and they essentially tell you to reapply and correct certain things, then it's a whole other kind of window of time that you're waiting to get another appointment. Now, sometimes they'll say, hey, I just need a couple more documents from you post-interview. And sometimes they'll even hold on to your passport and say, just submit X, Y, and Z because I need these last documents to be able to make a decision on your case. And you can provide those documents and they can approve it. They have they hold on to your passport. They can stamp the visa in the passport and mail it back to you. You have no need to go back. It just depends on the specifics of the case. Oh, that's interesting. Because it seems like you don't want to fuck it up the first time. Excuse my French. Because you, you want to get it right, do it right. Don't take shortcuts. You know, if you're going to go with the E2, just do it right. Spend the funds, spend the overhead, just like you would do with any business and build out a great projection as accurate as possible and take it from there. I think that's that's really the moral of it because I would doubt that anybody wants to take this journey and reapply and do it, do it moreover. More I mean, I'm sure that there's going to be some hiccups here and there, but it seems like it's it's a little bit of a little bit of a burden to reapply. Ideally, you know, best case scenario, you're putting your best foot forward the first time um, and it's a one and done, get approved and move on. But, you know, you never know with, um, with immigration, you're always, you know, in, in, to some extent, there's an adjudicator, there's somebody reviewing the case and it's with them. These are people, again, they're going through hundreds of applications a day um, and you know, we want to put our best foot forward, but we want to be ready for anything. We want to be able to um, pivot and, you know, take whatever necessary steps that we have at our disposal, you know, to account for whatever may happen. But ultimately, like you said, we want to put our best step, we want to put our best foot forward the first time. Right. Very good. And then shifting gears, I kind of want to juxtapose the two um, opportunities for for a work visa together. And so we had that, e- we talked at length about the E2. I'll say from now, I, I think based on what my understanding is, and maybe you, you want to challenge that, is I'm, I'm all about the E2. Uh, simply put, um, you know, my business is to help entrepreneurs grow their own businesses. And because of the flexibility, especially with the tax code, of being able to navigate certain transactions and certain things with your own business and, and, and how, you, how you spend your funds, I love the E2. And, you know... It, I get a lot of clients, some of which are some of your referrals, Michael, um, that come come to our office. We help them build the right financials. We help them build the right projections, and we help them monitor their activity to make sure they're hitting certain things within within um, their journey into the E two application process to ensure that you know they're ready to go. And I think it's it's been a very nice. Um, you know, communication with your office and mine and, and to be able to achieve certain things like that. Uh, you know, when, when I'm empowered to do kind of like some of the fractional CFO services of some of these startup organizations that are coming in to yours, you know, I love doing that. I think we have that in play. 
Um, so I'm all about the E2. But for the person who wants to learn a little bit more about other opportunities that are more passive in nature, which is not like, hey, I'm going to go start my own business, maybe the EB-5 works. Oftentimes it requires, it's more capital intensive, if I'm not mistaken. You mentioned the 800000 or the million dollar figure. Yeah. So, so EB-5, it's just like you pointed out. So EB-5 is another investor option that ultimately results in lawful permanent residence yeah. in the U.S. getting a green card. Mm -hmm. And there's, within EB-5, there's basically two types of ways you can go about it. You can make something... You can make an investment that's referred to as a direct investment, mm -hmm. which is kind of similar to an E2 in that you're, you know, either doing a startup or you're, you know, you're, you're buying into an existing business of some kind and, and you apply for your EB-5 visa that way by making what's referred to as a direct investment. Now, in addition to making a direct investment, there's another route called making a regional center investment. Right. Now, regional centers are these uh, entities that are regulated by USCIS and regional centers sponsor various individual projects. Uh -huh. These projects are usually large scale hotel developments or, or sports arenas or other sorts of projects that are being sponsored by the regional center. And rather than making a direct investment, you could consider making a regional center investment. And by making a regional center investment, generally, you do have some involvement in the management of the company. Typically, it's limited to some sort of voting rights. But really, the active operations, ensuring that the job creation is met, and all the different things that go into running that, uh, that project are handled by certain, a certain body that is in charge of that that is not necessarily you. So you can enjoy, I don't want to call it a passive role because you do have some involvement in the management through the voting rights, but it's certainly not to the extent of making a direct investment or making like an E2 investment. Oh, absolutely. So so you can enjoy that flexibility of being more passive. Yeah. Now, at times it, it it may cost you some of the upside because you're 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 you know in a direct investment and in it in the it, you know in an E2, you know when you're when you're in charge of your own business, you can you know the sky's the limit, you know, uh, on how successful you can be. Generally, in the context of regional center investments, you know, your upside is more capped. I mean, you can look at the historical figures for these various regional centers to see what their returns are to their investors. And, you know, I don't want to in any way give any sort of investment advice of any kind, but those kind of things should probably be looked into. Um, but yeah, uh, I think that's one of the- I'm comfortable, if you don't mind, I'll give you a few examples of, of, of ones that I've seen come to our office. I had an example, and one of the reasons I don't favor it, I'll be honest. Um, well, let me backtrack. I think everyone has a different position. Um, I think for the person who doesn't want to be the more active um, operator of a business, the EB-5 is a route to go in my mind. The Correct. And the regional center EB-5 route, essentially the way I've seen it operate, you're right. Technically, by paper, they have voting rights, but for all intents and purposes, I've seen the sponsor of a fund, essentially the GP of a type of, you know, uh, investment fund, uh, taking LP interests from the investors. So the person who wants to immigrate and use the EB-5, they will invest into this fund. They will have a dedicated investment, which is essentially a 
you said a regional center that's that's uh, you know in a in an area that's in you know they're that they're looking to develop and they're investing and they're targeting a certain rate of return. Like you said, oftentimes will not be as high as returns as uh, other types of investments. Reason being, it's kind of very straightforward to me is if I'm looking into maximizing return solely, then I'm going to be able to achieve a certain type of return versus I have two goals in this certain type of investment, which is, hey, I have my, you know, I want to maximize my ROI. And at the same time, I want to be able to achieve to get uh, to meet these USCIS rules to hit these uh, targets for them to be able to get their EB-5. And that's costly, right? And so for them to be able to achieve that and do all that by time, it may sacrifice some of the return. So fast forward a few years, you know, I've seen both happen. Uh, you know, I think the EB-5 uh, regional center route is a little bit more streamlined because it's literally a plug and play action. Um, be, and there isn't really very little to no uncertainty from, especially the ones that like the bigger ones, the Can-Ams of the crew and all these guys that are doing it day after day, they have these experiences So you make the investment and you should be pretty much, unless you know any horror stories you want to share, pretty good to go. Um, but fast forward, if you read into the uh, legal jargon of all these investment terms, you'll find certain things that you otherwise wouldn't have an issue with if you took your own, call it entrepreneurial E2 route. As an example, I have a client right now who's sitting 10 years after their EB-5 investment. Fast forward, they're all good with their legal resident uh, citizenship even. They got to that level status, but they're still locked up on that investment that they put in 10 years ago. You know, just that's the nature of it because there's so many fact patterns, like you said yourself, Mike, that uh, this investment entails that is kind of not in your hands. You're not in control of those funds. And so uh, when I see that, I think, okay, well, if I'm somebody, a third-party investor um, that wants to come to the States and invest, um, if I'm taking the EB-5 route, I'm somebody that has these funds and is okay to park these funds somewhere, get a you know, relatively nominal return out of it. Their funds are generally safe. I haven't seen, I haven't heard of too many horror stories from EB-5 investments, especially if you're working with some of the bigger guys, but they're going to be locked up and you're really not going to really get any meaningful return out of it. You'll get a nominal return out of it. It'll probably be locked up for quite some time, depending on each term. Um, and then you'll, you know, you'll ultimately be able to get your funds back and do whatever you want with them. But it really does serve to just streamline that uh, that you know the e, EB five uh, resident status and maybe get us somewhat of a little return. Whereas with E two, the opportunities are to you. If you're an entrepreneurial guy, which I love, I like to work with the um, with the entrepreneurs. That you know, a lot of my clients as well want to enter into the U.S. and you want to um, be able to control what you do and to you know, get more bang for your buck, especially if it's more important for you. And you told me yourself, you're able to get it with as low as $100,000. I love the E2. I love it for that group. And I would love to hear more about how to continue to support your clients as well as any others who have questions about it. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you don't mind, I want to go back to an earlier point. So I, what I would do is I would, what 
So, of course, there's E2 from the non-immigrant standpoint. Mm -hmm. And from the immigrant standpoint, we have EB5. And within EB5, we have those two branches. We have the regional center EB5 and the direct EB5. Correct. Direct EB5 is kind of similar in terms of, you know, your involvement typically to a regular E2. Mm -hmm. And regional center is that more passive option. So when I would kind of, there's a host of factors that I want to kind of apply this to everything that we talked about is that, you know, you might be hearing something in this podcast and you might be saying to yourself, oh, I decided, you know, that's right for me or that's right for me. You know, Michael said that and that means that I'm going to go this way. Don't make that mistake. Make sure whenever you want to finalize decisions or whenever you want to make some concrete decisions on your immigration, consult with an immigration lawyer because there's every when we go through it, there's a host of factors that we want to consider. And it's impossible to give, you know, blanket statements that apply to everybody. Sure. For purposes of this podcast. So whenever you want to make meaningful immigration decisions, consult with an immigration lawyer so that, you know, everything is evaluated. But generally, going back to this kind of regional center versus direct and E2 kind of these two categories, I would say that the people that are, you know, more entrepreneurial, they want to have more day-to-day involvement. They want to be in control of, of this investment. They want to be in control of how successful this can be. And they want to have a say in that. And they want to be in charge of that. Generally, those are the people where the direct EB-5 or the E-2 are more suitable um, options for them. Whereas the regional center investors are typically like, you know what? I don't want to have anything to do with this. I got other things going on. I want to get my green card. You know, I have this money to allocate towards this process and, you know, let them handle it. And then in the, in that context, the regional center investment is um, is more suitable. Now, you know, you, you alluded to like horror stories. Unfortunately, at EB-5, there has been, you know, multiple instances, well-documented instances of fraud within the program. Wow. Instances of people, of, and not maybe not necessarily fraud, but projects that have gone under while the immigration pro- proceedings were underway. And unfortunately, in, in, in a number of those cases, the people were, you know, left with without immigration benefits at the end of it. Wow. So, but with that, though, there are also a number of success stories. And there are um, many investors who have gone through the process smoothly and have gotten their green card as a result for not only themselves, but their spouse and their children under 21 years old unmarried children under 21 years old, and they've been able to secure these immigration benefits. So um, again, regarding picking a, a regional center that's not my area, I always defer to the experts in that, you know, the the investment advisors or the various people that are qualified to render that kind of advice. But, it, you know, someone should be very careful to select a regional center that has a good track record, potentially a project. There's various factors that go into that due diligence process, and it should be handled with care. Um, because there's a lot at stake, you know, if, if that project fails, you know, it could, it could be detrimental potentially to the immigration, uh, component of it, not only the investment component of it. So it's something that should certainly be handled with a great degree of care. Absolutely. No, uh, I, I totally agree with you and, uh, always consult, uh, the right professional when you're, when you're making certain decisions, both on the immigration side as well on the investment side. Okay, uh, very good. Mike, switching switching gears a little bit, I want to, you know, kind of circle back uh, 
you know, for those who don't know, Michael, uh, you know, I know you're a very modest guy, but he, you, you became very successful uh, very quickly in your career. And we, we kind of want some in, insight as to kind of your journey, if you don't mind. Um, and so and so specifically, if you could highlight maybe a, a big turning point in your career uh, that, uh, you know, maybe you reflect on looking back, at, at, you know, sitting about almost a decade now that you being an attorney, uh, any, any, any major turning point that you want to focus on that you want to share with us? So, um, I do have a story. I have a turning point that it, like when you, when you mentioned turning point, I think about, you know, how I became an immigration lawyer, which was certainly not a part of the plans, so to speak. Um, and I, you know, I've mentioned this story before and I'd be happy to share it with you as well, but, um, I didn't start off as an immigration lawyer. I went to law school. I didn't necessarily know specifically what I wanted to do. I was interested in real estate. I was interested in business. There were uh, there were a lot of kind of entrepreneurial uh, fields that I was interested in. And, um, you know, lo and behold, I graduated law school and I started looking for jobs. And I found myself working at an insurance defense company, a def- an insurance defense law firm. And basically... Um, the field of law that I was involved in is that, you know, people would sometimes get injured at work. Okay. And when they would get injured at work, they would file claims against their employers. And I was basically representing the insurance companies that were defending these employers. So somebody would say, hey, they would say they slipped at work, they hurt their knee, and we would be the lawyers that were defending the employers and saying, hey, did you really, did you really, uh, slip at work or is this something that happened on the weekend and you're trying to blame it on work mm-hmm. for benefits of some kind? Mm-hmm. And um, and I remember one specific instance of uh, taking a deposition. And a deposition is much like this. It's almost like an interview where there's a court reporter taking notes of everything that you're saying and, and transcribing what you're saying. And, um, and that, you know, the content of that deposition can be used at trial. And I was taking a deposition of this injured worker. And as part of her claim, she alleged that she was suffering from anxiety and depression. And any time that somebody, you know, in this industry, you know, as part of my role as the defense attorney, any time that an injured worker would um, reference these kind of psychological injuries like depression or anxiety, we had these questions that we had, we would have to go to, to basically see if if there was any other traumatic events in their life that could have caused uh, this depression or this anxiety or whatever other psychological harm that they're referencing. So, um, you know, we, we I, unfortunately, you know, the situation was such that I saw that she had a previous cancer diagnosis mm-hmm. and I, I had to, you know, I was I was still relatively new. My boss is sitting right next to me shadowing how I'm taking this deposition. And I had to ask about the previous cancer diagnosis. Wow. And I asked about it. And I remember it was, an, it was an older lady that I was deposing. And she broke down and started crying. Wow. And it was because of the question that I asked her, made this lady just start crying. And you could tell that it, it really hurt her. And it was pretty much at that moment that I knew that this wasn't for me. I remember I left the deposition, you know, the deposition winded up, I left and I called my dad 
And I was like, dad, I have, I, I know this isn't, I can't do this. This isn't for me. And, um, shortly thereafter I quit, I quit that position. I didn't have a plan of what I was going to do. Um, but I did have a contact of an immigration lawyer in law school from when I was in law school. And that's a whole other thing. And I can kind of quickly study it, but, um, in law school, we had to write a paper. As I mentioned, I was very interested in entrepreneurship. I was interested in real estate, et cetera. And I had come to learn from a, a friend of mine about something called EB-5. Mm -hmm. EB-5, we've been talking about it today. It's, a, it's you know, you, you invest, it's a, investors use it. Uh, you know, real estate developers use it to fund these massive projects. So I was captivated by it. And I had a real estate professor in law school. And I, I went to him and I said, hey, for this writing assignment, I want to write about using EB-5 as a source of real estate finance, as a tool for real estate finance. He said, go for it. So I went to Google. I'm like, you know what? I want to interview an EB-5 attorney. So I Googled EB-5 attorney near me, something like that. And I came across this attorney that was local to me. Um, and I just shot him a cold email. I said, hey, I have this project for law school. Can I, um, can I interview you? to learn more about EB-5, to get your opinion on EB-5, et cetera. He said, sure. So interviewed him. This was back in law school. And we kind of loosely had that connection. So, I mean, when, when everything, when I left my job, I had that contact and I just reached back out to him. I'm like, hey, can we meet? I want to talk to you about a few things. And ultimately, I just kind of felt him out more seriously about how he enjoyed what he did and, um, and everything to that effect. And, and I ended the conversation very nervously asking if I could just shadow him. Mm -hmm. I said, look, I don't want to get paid. I don't want to get, um, I don't want, I just want to learn from you. You know, this man was, a, is a, to this day, a phenomenal attorney in, in all aspects of immigration, but particularly in EB-5. And I'm like, hey, I just want to learn from you. Can I come to the office? Can I learn? And it felt like an eternity that he kind of thought about it. It was probably 10 seconds or something like that. But he's like, he said, yeah, you, you can come in. And I started going in from there. And that's basically the origin of how I started getting involved in immigration. Right. Um, yeah. So that was a turning point, I would say. That's amazing. Um, you know, oftentimes, especially in our office, we have younger entrepreneurs who are just going through the cycle and even some old who, who still haven't found, you know, uh, exactly what it is that they're, you know, they're truly passionate about and want to work in. And, you know, uh, it's another example to me of, you know, being in that journey. And, and I always say is just go and do it. Uh, it doesn't even matter at sometimes what you're doing, as long as you're doing something and you're going through the journey of figuring, figuring out who you are, what you like, what you resonate with, what you don't resonate with in, in your example, right? It's important to find that out. And the only way sometimes you do find that out is when you get these very valuable experiences because I'm sure, you know, although it seems like that experience uh, of being a personal injury defense or no, it seemed like a workers comp defense attorney um, wasn't your ideal experience, but I'm sure you're very thankful for it because it seems like it kind of navigated you to where you are right now. And I, and I love that. I love hearing stories like that because it's those moments, if you look back at that moment, you're probably in a place where you thought like, oh my God, like, why am I in this position? Why is this happening? And I'm not happy here. 
And obviously you were empowered enough to make a change. And that's very important in that journey to make that change once you feel that way and just, uh, you know, switch it up. Um, but at the same time, in looking back, if it wasn't for that experience, you probably wouldn't have made that switch. Exactly. You know, if, if it was, I'm very grateful for the experience, just like you said, because had I not gone in and accepted that position and worked in that role, I wouldn't have known that it wasn't right for me. Uh, that's great. Another thing that brought up um, is another concept that we talk about is just the uh, really the biggest important, the most important thing, if not the most important thing is business is throughout your journey, maintaining and nurturing relationships. And, and uh, you know, it seemed like uh, in you, you had some sort of impression while you were in college with this immigration attorney. Um, he was able to help you out and you were able to pull him during your during your college years, but at the same time, nurturing that relationship and being able to pick up the phone and go back and speak to him and asking him to, um, you know, not, I'm sure, because I know you, Michael, I, I don't think, I don't think anybody would easily just say yes to anybody to come shadow them. That's like a big thing. And it's a product of, you know, you cultivating that relationship and being able to maintain that. So uh, kudos to you, Matt. And I think one of my things are, uh, relationships are imperative in any industry and continuing to maintain them is important too. Um, and so maybe you could help, help us a little bit is do you like with your clients, with your audience, um, you know, another thing that you're super good at, I'd, I'd love your, I'd love some of your insight to our audience as well is, you know, you've been very successful in the social media space and generating content and keeping it relevant for your audience. How do you do it? What are some tips you can give us? Um, you know, it's all about relationships as well, whether it's, you know, f more formal, personal, personal relationships, or even just something a little bit deeper, like your audience that you may, you may not know all of them, but you're maintaining content, content, contact with them. How are you doing this? And what is your process? Do you have rituals you want to share? And uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about that. Sure. So just it was a, load, it was a loaded, uh, I know it was a lot there. Yeah. Yeah. I'll you just... could unpack it one by one a little if you can. Yeah, so first thing, um, I'm extraordinarily grateful to uh, God to send me this blessing in the form of this attorney that did act as a mentor to me. If anything, I don't want to. I don't want to take any sort of credit as my ability to maintain that relationship. I think it's more so a testament to his character to be that willing to be a coach to this day, to be somebody that I could bounce ideas off, and uh, to now now we work together in more of a collaborative sense. On certain matters, but I think um, I think you know certain people are just special people, and um, and I think he just happens to be one of those people. So, I wanted to make that get that out there. But okay, um, but touching on the content creation side of things, I will say that um, I think that wh whatever your industry is, as you immerse yourself in that industry, as you talk to the customers in that industry, you start to hear, you know, commonalities in, in topics that people have interest in, in a way that outsiders don't get to get that insight. Um, and I think it's important for any sort of content creator to kind of be very perceptive to that and to see, you know, what is it that these people have interest in that is recurring. And it seems like there isn't readily accessible information on that, or it isn't packaged in a way that addresses it head on and is then is 
you know, gives a well-rounded answer that even you intuit that other things that need to be brought into this information that they didn't even know that they're curious about that, but it relates in some sense. So I think, um, as a content creator, I think one of the greatest skill sets you can have is to be very perceptive and have an awareness of what your audience wants to know about and how to package what it is that your audience wants to know about with other ancillary things that fit into that to make it even more exponentially valuable. And I think that the more that you can do that, the more that you're going to develop consumers of your content that are just eagerly anticipating whatever it is that you have to to share with them. Uh, that's, very, that, that's very insightful. I, I appreciate that. And and in terms of how you deliver that, de- deliver that and how you find that, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you have your own uh, vehicles to find certain things in your industry, but is that something that you're literally dedicating, you know, your daily thing? Have you delegated most of that now? What is your specific process, if you could share, like in terms of giving that content, giving that information to you? How much of that are you spending in your time? Because you can imagine you're a busy guy. So, uh, you know, I... You know, for the people that are so busy, I want I want I want to understand how, what it really takes and how you can really achieve it. I mean, at least how you do it. Yeah. So for me, you know, how it started off, um, it was um, it was a much slower process. Just starting with, you know, for example, in the context of recording videos, uh-huh. um, when I was just starting out recording videos, it was a much slower process, and you know, getting one video out would take up such a significant portion, you know, amount of time okay. to make sure that everything was spoken perfectly and everything was um, done in one take. I wouldn't even edit that. If I, I would record the whole video in one take. Wow. And if there was a, if, if I said one thing wrong or like I just said saw instead of another word or whatever it was, right back to the beginning, I recorded the whole thing all over again. Oh, wow. So that's you, the full-time job right there. When it was, um, you know, recording videos at, at, at the early at the early days of starting to put out video content, it was much slower. But with anything, the more you do it, the better you get at it, and the more um, the more efficient you can get at it. So um, to answer your question, I still devote a considerable time to putting out videos because I think it's so valuable to. Uh, you know, especially in my industry, there's changes that are occurring all the time. And with these changes, you know, our, our network, either whether they be our existing clients or just people that are, you know, watchers of our content, they want to, they, they hear rumblings of these changes. They want to know more about it. And, uh, and we're happy to provide that information to them. So, um, so yes, it, it is a considerable um, time commitment it's a considerable commitment of effort, but um, but we're happy to do it. We're happy to do it for our audience, and um, we think it's extremely valuable. It's great. Is there a particular amount of time a day that you spend on it, on I average? Know, yeah. So I I know that um I know that there are some people that have a a strict regimen, like they will record videos on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, mm-hmm. and they'll have a content calendar of all the content that they anticipate recording for the month and they'll strictly abide by that. Um, it's not my process. I don't have a particular daily allocation of time to it, but I do consistently, my, my, my goal is always to consistently um, create 
um, content for our audience. And so um, whether that be, you know, developing, you know, over the course of a week or aggregating it to one day where I was able to carve out a, 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 a block of time to work on it, um, it varies. Um, but it is a significant priority as terms of, in terms of like your business priorities as, as in terms of your like day to day. It's a, it's certainly one of the components of, of my role that is very important to me. And I do definitely carve out time for it. Yeah. You look good. You look good on camera too. So, uh, it's, it must be, it must be nice. It must be nice to be able to showcase that a little bit. <laughs> so I want to go a little fun here for, uh, for our audience. I'm just going to ask you, are you single? <laughs> Come on, don't be shy. Let it out a little. Um, I'm going to talk to your, I'm going to talk to your editors. After, 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 after. <laughs> how can, how can someone who's interested in dating you reach you? I mean, through, uh, through my, my, uh, best friend Nav and, uh, and through Nav Capital Consulting, just leave him a, leave him a comment. We, we will, we will take, take any inquiries and, um, you know, so, so you are single? Bro. <laughs> Matchmaking down the matchmaking hour. We're trying to deliver the we're trying to deliver the co the the value bombs. This is value. This is more value than you could think that you could think about. So, uh, ladies, la ladies, right? Ladies, L ladies. Uh, M M Michael, Michael Ashuri uh, is is single. We are taking inquiries. Is there is there a particular type that you have, bro? Can we, um, editors? I have comments <laughs> on this thing. <laughs> he's being it's it's just modest michael modest michael uh you know talking and so i um uh, if you would let me i think i know michael pretty well and so please send out the inquiries and uh we will we will navigate them in true nav uh effect uh most appropriately and uh, although this is all jokes jokes guys and uh michael it's been an absolute pleasure uh, you know, chatting it up with you. I hope we, we do this again very soon. Thank you for joining. Any any last thoughts for our audience? Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Um, and I would love to be on again. Um, I think that's it. I think if uh, in the description, you can put uh, whatever contact information you have for me if you'd like. Um, and I just welcome your audience to reach out to me if they'd like, if they have any questions. Um, we're happy to uh, happy to be in contact with them. Awesome, thanks, Mike. So, so going back into the the significance of relationships, Mike, I I kind of wanted to really emphasize the importance of that to to our audience, and you know whether friendships, whether you know who you choose to work with, it's very important because it takes a lot of energy from you and um and uh, you know a lot of energy that you're receiving from others, and I. You know, I'm all about energy and uh, being able to assign your energy to the right path, for lack of a better way to say it. Um, and, you know, it's been an absolute blessing, you know, growing with you over the years. Uh, as many uh, as many may know or may not know, uh, you know, Michael and I have, you know, grew up together. Uh, and he has certain stories that he that he could share uh, at a separate time. Um, this time. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it, it, 
the importance of relationships and surrounding yourself with like-minded individuals who are, are always trying to grow and always trying to push. We're always trying to push each other and really blessed uh, as a fellow entrepreneur uh, to be along your side on that. And you know, I kind of wanted to share a story of how things certain ha- uh, kind of happen behind the scenes and, and, you know, in, in various businesses, but even for mine, you know, I know that you and I, we spent a lot of fun time together. I remember our highlight years. Uh, those were great. Um, you know, our UCLA years, uh, you know, some of the best memories. And, and especially in this journey of business and entrepreneurship, you know, I remember one night uh, you know, we, 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 we met up. I think it was your new place out in Santa Monica. Um, if I'm not mistaken, it was Santa Monica or West Hollywood. Uh, regardless, we, we went, had a nice workout, uh, you know, sharing a typical, typical day, you know, that you, you and I share, had a nice workout, came back home, opened a bottle of Blue Label, sat down and just like chatted up, talked shop. I was more uh, green in my career at the time. And uh, you had a few years in uh, operating your own business and uh, I remember just, you know, at that time, I was just trying to find value within my skill set, finding my niche and uh, finding, you know, certain areas that I wanted to take a deeper dive on. And uh, lo and behold, it was during the COVID years had started and there was the employee retention credit that came out. And I remember I was uh, I was challenging the uh, IRS <laughs> guidance that came out. It was like a 200-page book. I, I don't know if you I don't know if you remember this day I'm talking about, but we were just going back and forth, um, talking about and interpreting some of the guidance. And uh, I remember there was a big aha moment into what ultimately came down to one word. Do you remember the word that I'm talking about in the guidance? <laughs> so. So basically, we were going around interpreting the guidance, and and uh, to my audience, this was essentially for me a million dollar uh, aha moment, uh, where I was interpreting the guidance of the employee retention credit, where we were assessing who would qualify, what business would qualify for the employee retention credit, and you know, as an attorney, I always like to. Uh, you know, you being an attorney, I always like to piggyback and like, you know, to help, to help me with interpretations, which is something that uh, most of my attorney clients, including yourself, are super good at just because you guys spent countless number of years going through and, uh, you know, reading uh, case law. And so, you know, going through that IRS guidance, I remember going through specifically every single uh, page of that thing. And when it came down to like who qualifies, there were essentially, there was this one like huge section about, okay, well, if your, if your gross receipts in this year versus this year were this much less and that much less, or if you had some sort of partial suspension of your business and we were going, and then uh, it, due to a government order, then you would be able to uh, uh, qualify. And so we would go, we were going through that and like we were challenging each other. And, you know, um, ultimately I was at a position where I was like, oh my God, you know, the guidance essentially just put us at a point where we can pick and choose which, uh, which test for lack of a better word would, would effectively qualify us. 
And that decision is a huge decision if you're looking at assessments, right? Because if it's, so going back to the guidance, you have, if you're a business and your gross receipts in your business pre-COVID were essentially either 50% in 2020 or uh, 20% lower in 2021 versus pre-COVID levels, you would qualify, right? Or, right, or the big word that I was looking for, or if your business uh, was partially suspended as a result of a government mandate, which is like these closures from COVID, then you would qualify as well. Now, I was going back and forth with other CPAs and stuff, and it was, you know, talking about this uh, interpretation because it just came out and everyone was just going, well, what do we do? Like, this is like a 200-page document. Like, uh, how are we going to implement this? Do our clients qualify or not? But I remember it was with you. I was like, discussing this and ultimately came to the conclusion that it's a, it's either or. So you don't necessarily need to have both. And that opened up ultimately in my business a whole like slew of potential qualified candidates that I could go out and help and get these meaningful credits. We're talking about right upwards of $26,000 per employee that they had. You know, for an organization that had, you know, 10 employees you know, twenty two hundred sixty thousand dollars is a good amount of money that we could have gone after and got our clients. And it, you know, to go full circle, my intention of going and rambling about this is, had I not had the relationship with you and just surrounded myself with people who challenged me, I wouldn't have gone and you know debated that concept with you. And you know, for that, I'm super appreciative. Uh, and I think it's really important to always, always uh, surround yourself with folks that. You know, challenge you, uh, force you to take the extra step, get uncomfortable, and uh, you know, really, really appreciative of that. Now, now you remember which word I was looking for? Yeah, now I do. So, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, sorry, I, did you? No, yeah, that's that, that's it. I mean, I really, I really just wanted to share some of that insight, um, and ultimately, um, you know, kind of go back also to to. Uh, uh, the concept of you know you know you you know you mentioned you mentioned being very thankful and um, I know that you're a very spiritual person uh, and you've helped you've helped me and then I share this with my clients as well to have that faith concept um, in in whoever you believe in uh, and especially applying that to your business and believing that you you know. Uh, uh, there, you know, just having faith and moving forward and putting your stuff forward and going through that journey. Um, you know, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to go through situations. Like as an example, you, you shared with us uh, certain things that you went through that ultimately got you where you wanted to be, whether it was your social media, where you would spend hours at a time where now you're probably masterful at, you know, posting content um, or other examples that I, I can share where, you know, where, where I'm at now versus where I was, um, just go through the journey. Um, believe there's a Yoel Romero quote. We'll, we'll get, we'll get up, uh, and share. It's very motivational, uh, UFC fighter, Yoel Romero, uh, that, you know, in, in business, especially, you know, you, you just got to go and believe and, uh, uh, I think uh, if you have your head straight, you'll go the right path, and uh, you know, come on the right side, come out on the right side, winning. Beautiful. All right, man. Thank you.